Well, greetings, my friends. I hope you're all doing well. My next guest is master herbalist and practicing druid, Ellen Hopman. She's the author of multiple books, but today we're going to be focusing on her newest work, which is titled The Sacred Herbs of Yule and Christmas. Remedies, Recipes, Magic, and Brews for the Winter Season. Sacred herbs will be enjoyed by anyone interested in herbs or cooking. It's also packed full of fascinating stories of Christmas from all around the world. Stories that go well beyond old Saint Nick and delve into areas including werewolves, demons, and all sorts of other assorted nasties. And I have to confess, that was my personal favorite part of the book, though I do intend to make some of these recipes myself. Through our conversation, we also get into topics surrounding the history of Druids and Celtic spirituality and all kinds of other inf- interesting things. Ellen, is a, a, Ellen has a wealth of information about these topics, and it was just a generally fascinating conversation that uh, I think you are all going to enjoy. I am fully confident you will all enjoy. And so, with no further ado, here's Ellen Hotman in the sacred herbs of Yule and Christmas. Thank you very much, everybody. I hope you're all doing well, and I mean that sincerely. I hope your 2024s are successful and happy. Peace out, my friends. All right, Ellen, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. And um, got your book right here. And uh, it is a fascinating and fun book. Ah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Um, you know, when I when Inner Tradition sent me that one, it was interesting because I Christmas isn't it's not just not something I walk around feeling an interest in. So I saw it and I was like, huh. But then I started reading it, and man, there's so much fascinating stuff in there. I ended up I love the book. So um before we get into some of the details of it, um, could you just say what inspired you to to pick this subject? Well, <laughs> there's actually three books now. I don't know if you've seen the other ones, but um, I have. It's it's part of a, a trilogy. Now, the first one is called The Sacred Herbs of Samhain. It's not Samhain. Samhain. Really? Samhain, huh? <laughs> yeah. And uh, Samhain is Halloween. Hmm. So that was the first one. And of course, because it's a Halloween book, it focuses on the herbs of fall which is mostly roots, barks, berries, you know, things that you gather in the fall. And then the next book was The Sacred Herbs of Spring. And um, all these books, it's all the same idea. I talk about the history of the festivals. Uh, the, The Sacred Herbs of Spring is about Beltane or May Day. So I go into great depth um, around the world, not just one culture, but many different cultures, uh, the Sacred Herbs of Samhain is a bit more Celtic. The Sacred Herbs of Beltane, I actually got into some of the Roman uh, celebrations, like the goddess Flora was celebrated, the goddess of flowers, who people don't really understand because they thought flowers were extremely important. Um, they weren't mm. just, you know, floofy little things. And um, because if you don't have flowers, think about it when you have a bad year and the apple trees lose their flowers. Right. You have no crop. Right. So that's why they had a festival for Flora, because they wanted to make sure they had good flowers Hmm. Um, so they could have wine and apples and things. And then um, the third one is the Sacred Herbs of Yule and Christmas, which is winter. So it's things you can gather in the winter, the conifers, you know, pines and 
berries that are still available and um and then of course the magic and the lore and lots of recipes and that's kind of what i've been thinking i also have a kids book called once around the sun where i go do something similar i do stories for the entire wheel of the year and then mm-hmm. give recipes and crafts so that's kind of the way my mind has been going for the last decade i think <laughs> that's really cool yeah because i mean you're you're um for the listeners and i i should have mentioned i i will do a proper introduction that I edit into the beginning of the videos myself. I don't like to waste my time with my guests by giving introduction. You know who you are, but but I will do it. But um, so your background is in herbalism. Like you've you've been immersed in the world of herbalism for a long time. It seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. since nineteen early nineteen eighties. Wow. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. And the yeah, in this book, I actually was just this morning sent my brother the the birch bark cookies. That recipe, that sounds interesting. I sent him that. I said, uh, yeah, man, we got to try making these. Have you actually tried? How many of these recipes did you make? Um, a number of them. Um, I do have my favorites. <laughs> and um, my favorite one, and I talk about this one often, <laughs> it, because it, I put a lot of work into it. Um, every fall, I go out and I gather acorns. And um, I used to do it all by myself. Now I have friends that are interested. I've been trying really hard to teach people how to do this because it drives me crazy that there's oak trees. I live in an oak forest and there are oak trees everywhere here. And very few people know how to do this, which is crazy. But um, (laughs) we go out, we get the acorns, um, then we bring them back. And um, contrary to what I see, I see there's a lot of videos online and about how to process acorns none of it makes sense to me because what i do is i try to find green ones so i go very early in the season as soon as they start falling because if you wait until the acorns are brown um only about one out of every five is good most of them are rotten so you get them when they're green and then i have rocks i don't have anything fancy i have two rocks that i picked up by a local lake one has a slight depression, the other one is flat. I smash the acorns one at a time, pick out the the meat, and because I've gathered them green, it's almost 100% usable. I don't have any waste. Um, and then I immediately put the nuts in water. And um, after I've got a nice big bowl, and that takes usually hours and hours, I mean, four or five hours of work, uh, which it's better to have friends, <laughs> because, um, or I put on a CD and I listen to Irish music, <laughs> you know. But um, but then you take those and you gr- you make a gruel. You put them in the blender, uh, just enough to make a gruel, and then the gruel, you have half gruel, half water in glass jars, and those jars I keep them in the refrigerator. I don't know if that's strictly necessary, but that's what I do. So for two weeks. I pour off the water, put in fresh water, and I keep doing that um, for two weeks. And then I strain out everything, uh, roast it in the oven until it's completely dry. And then when I want to make a cake, and and you can make cake, cookies, bread, whatever. I have a recipe for a beautiful cake in the book. Um, I have a coffee grinder that Mm -hmm. I use just for the acorns. And so I put the dried gruel in the coffee grinder and I make flour and I have fresh acorn flour anytime I want to bake. So that that's mm. the one that I 
I'm known for at Christmas time and I bring them to people's houses and I once figured it takes about 80 hours to make one cake. Holy <laughs> So so it's quite a present. <laughs> yeah. I hope I hope they understand the commitment that you've put into it. Most people don't, unless no. you actually tell them, you know, <laughs> yeah. this took me 80 hours. They have no idea. But it's but it's amazing. Um and you know it's really good for you. It's healthy. It it has more protein than wheat flour, um, mm. and and you can use gluten free. I use half acorn, half gluten free flour, um, so that all the gluten free people, it's hard to keep up, you know. So they won't. They can have it too, um, mm. and that's my my main Christmas thing. Very cool. Is that <laughs> that's not is that's not the snake cake. No, that's not the snake cake. Okay, yeah, because I actually took a note. Could you could you just talk about the snake cake a little bit? Because I just think it's interesting, and I think people would be interested to hear it. Well, a lot of cultures have snake cakes, <laughs> but um, I have uh, these three books. Um, I have a, a detailed ritual in each one. So the sacred herbs of Samhain. I have a ritual for the Morrigan, who is a triple Celtic goddess, in the sacred herbs of spring and Beltane. I have um, an, a ritual for the goddess Flora. And then um, in the sacred herbs of Yule and Christmas, I have a ritual for the Kayach, who is the ancient hag goddess, the land creator goddess uh, from Celtic tradition. But um, I suggest at the end that a nice way to end the ritual is to serve a snake cake. So what is a snake cake? <laughs> Um, it's just a cake that you you roll out the dough to make a like a, a strip and then you you fashion one end to look like the head of a snake and the other end you make it like a tail and the tail goes in the snake's mouth. Like an Ouroboros. Exactly. It's the Ouroboros. And Ouroboros implies eternity. Um, and that's a nice thing about the winter solstice is the sun always comes back, we hope, right? <laughs> and right. Uh, snakes are also symbols of healing um, because they shed their skin. They have the ability to transform themselves. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the medical symbol, the caduceus, has two snakes. That's mm. one reason why. Because um, when, when in ancient times, when they saw the symbol of a snake, that meant a healer. You know, somebody who knows how to transform, you know, to, to change you from your sick state, sick state to a healthy state. So there's a lot of symbolism there. And um, you serve that at the end of the ritual, maybe with a, a little bit of wine or something. It's called cakes and wine. <laughs> and um, it's very symbolic, you know, and, and anything round. I mean, in the book, I talk a lot about things like round bread, um, coins, gold coins especially, uh, whenever you see those uh, appearing in folklore, in folk customs, that's the sun. Those are symbolic of the mm -hmm. sun. And that's why we have one reason why we have round wreaths. You know, we put a round wreath on the door. It's also the sun, <laughs> you know. Oh, very interesting. That, yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. That makes sense. Um, yeah, and so to, to the viewers, the book is, we've got the recipes, uh, which is really interesting stuff. And it's like kind of about the first half of the book, roughly. Um, that gets into it's like the second half is more recipes and things like that. And then the first half, I, I don't think it's evenly divided in half, but the first portion goes over various traditions from around the world. And uh, 
that stuff is just really fascinating. I was hoping to go into a couple of details uh, about those items, things that caught my attention uh, specifically. And the first, I'm going to need your help in pronouncing this. Uh, I actually have some some Basque heritage. So the oh. the Olencero, Olencero. Well, I would give it the Spanish pronunciation, Olencero. <laughs> oh, that's how you say. It. Well, no, okay, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I yeah, I lived in in northern Spain actually for three years. Um, in the oh ba- wow, really? País Vasco, you know. I did live there, um, and I do speak a little Spanish, but um, Olencero. Um, I believe that was page twenty five, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, twenty one. Twenty one. In the Basque area that straddles northeastern Spain and southwestern France, a, a character called Olencero, whose name means time of the good ones, originally a giant and later described as a charcoal burner or shepherd, comes from the wild mountains on the night of December 24 to distribute presents. He wears a boina, a Basque beret. On Christmas Eve, Basque shepherds dance in the village wearing pelts and reciting ancient verses. Youths, youths go from house to house, dancing and singing, collecting food or money to prepare a festive dinner. So the fact that he comes um, from the mountains, the wild mountains, um, and the fact that he's either a charcoal burner, charcoal burners um, had their their setup <laughs> away from the village you know in the wild and the same thing with Mm. shepherds shepherds are you know they would stay day and night um out in the fields and what that means is they're much more connected to nature so they're connected to the mystical wild forces of nature Mm. that's what that is so um he comes down on the night of december 24th bringing presents so this is bringing magic uh, into the village, you know. It's it's the Basque religion was a nature religion, and the main goddess was named Mari. And the way you accessed Mari was you had to go into a cave. You had to go in a hole, a deep hole in the ground, or into a cave, and then you would make offerings to her. But you had to go under the earth. And she's hmm. the earth goddess. Yeah, it's so. There's a tremendous amount of respect for the wild and for nature kind of encoded in this story. Was she, was she generally benevolent or generally malevolent? No, she's the earth mother. She's the, the goddess who creates all. Oh, yeah. I, I ask, you know, in some traditions, in many traditions, you have the gods that represent like duality and they can be kind of both at the same time, you know? Well, I'm not an expert in, in Mari, but my impression with her is that she's the earth mother. She's the one who feeds us, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you're making offerings to her, um, you're giving thanks to the earth for all that it gives you because the, cool. the earth is your mother, <laughs> you know? That's really, I, I actually did a couple of years ago. I didn't dig deep, but I did try to find some information on the Basque religion. And there really is not much out there. I, I actually you know I forgot about this because I contacted a professor that lives in Spain mm-hmm. who had written on the subject. And he and I had a couple little back and forths, but um, I forgot to follow up on it more. So I appreciate you sharing that uh, tidbit. Yeah, my impression is that Mari is really the most important one. Mm. Very interesting. The mother goddess. What was that? The mother goddess. Right. Earth mother. Yeah. 
It's interesting what you said about them coming from the wild, because I was just reading a few days ago, somebody talking about um, how Jesus being born in a manger was itself symbolic because it was him coming out of the most like, um, not, not dirty. I mean, it's not a negative thing, but like the basis aspects of the material reality, like the divine coming out of the basest aspects of material world, you know, that's and a manger sur- animals. He's, he's surrounded by animals. Right. Right. And he he's laid in straw. And I have a whole chapter on straw, just on grain and straw. Mm. Straw is very symbolic also. It's golden, it's solar. Um, it you know, it has a lot of magical properties. So in in many different traditions at Christmas time. Um, you put straw under the um, tablecloth at Christmas dinner, or you put straw under the table, or you lay straw on the ground and people actually sleep on it because it has the, the energy and power of the sun. Hmm. No, that makes, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now I want to add straw to my, uh, to my, my Christmas celebrations. <laughs> um, so, Let's also talk about the uh, the Greek Kalikinsari. Is that oh, how you say it? Boy, I, I've never heard it spoken out loud. <laughs> um, so that's tough. Um, the best I can, I, I'd like to hear from a Greek person how to say this, but Kalikinsari or Kalikinsari. Um, again, th- these are, okay, these are elves or demons who are said to appear during the 12-day period between Christmas and Epiphany. The night of Epiphany, by the way, tonight is January 5th. So the night of Epiphany is tonight. <laughs> um, so this is their last time to be out and about. Okay. Um, descriptions of their appearance vary. They're said to be small, black, male, and mostly blind. That's because they live underground uh, with long black tails or perhaps to have crooked legs and arms, hunched backs, large ears, strange eyes, and all kinds of other deformities. Some report that they wear wooden or iron boots to better kick people. Others maintain they are hooved, not booted. Their speech is lifting, and they like to dine on worms, snails, and frogs. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... The Kalikansari or Kalikansari live deep underground at the center of the earth where they constantly labor with a huge handsaw to cut down the world tree that supports the earth. They're terrified of the sun and emerge only at Yuletide during the darkest days of the year. And again, tonight is their last night. Once Mm -hmm. above ground, they invade homes, coming down the chimney and through openings such as keyholes, windows, and cracks in doors and windows. They play tricks on humans, perhaps peeing on the fire, souring the milk, or making people dance to the point of exhaustion and generally cause mayhem. Um, So, okay, this is, there's a theme to this, okay? This is the darkest time of year. Right. So this time of year, which is ending tonight, <laughs> um, <laughs> all the things that normally live underground because they like being in the dark. And actually in Germanic tradition, they like flying across the night sky. But in other traditions, they live underground. Um, they only emerge and come up above ground now because the earth 
is dark and it most closely resembles their home. Hmm. So that's why they emerge this time of year. And that's why there's all these things that we do. Why do we put lights on the house? Why do we put lights on the Christmas tree? Why do we light candles? Why do we have Yule logs? Why do we have bonfires outside? All these traditions are for one purpose, which is to scare away all these nasty things that come out this time of year. And you you find it across different cultures. And what's interesting to me is we're still doing this stuff, but we just don't know why. Right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the best way to control them is by fire, which they're deathly afraid of. For this reason, a large Yule log is kept burning in the hearth for the entire Yuletide period. You can also repel them by hanging herbs of protection and purification, such as hyssop, thistle, and asparagus, or the jaw of a pig. Now, in the book, I talk a lot about the magical properties of plants, of course. Um, you can leave a kitchen colander on the doorstep to distract them because they are so stupid that they can only <laughs> count to two, and they will get lost counting the holes in the colander all night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, there's different cultures that have similar traditions. Um, I think this is also a Greek tradition. You make balls of uh, wheat, and water and salt or sugar and you throw them on the roof and the reason you do that is because again the spirits are very stupid and they can only count to two and if you put 12 balls on the roof uh, they will get hopelessly tangled trying to count them and then they'll never bother you because they'll be lost and <laughs> in yeah, other that's interesting yeah and in other traditions um they say that that's how you repel witches Although I know witches, and in my experience, they tend to be very intelligent people. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then the Celtic knotwork. If, you, if you've seen Celtic jewelry, it often has knotwork. Uh, same thing with uh, Scandinavian um, Germanic Viking jewelry. You'll see that knotwork. Mm -hmm. That is to confuse the nasty spirits. It's a protective device. Um because they'll they'll look at it and they'll get totally hopelessly tangled up in it and they they'll leave you alone. That's the that's that, that's interesting. That was I have to say some of my favorite stuff in the book were the more um, darker the darker traditions from around the world because it's you know growing up in America I just always think of Christmas as it's a fun time so you know good good stuff and it's interesting to read all these like nightmare the the one. Um, the Latvian and Estonian, you mentioned there is like a, a a lame boy that roams the countryside summoning Satan's servants. Um, and like they kind of let to he allows them to like reign for 12 days or, or I think it was 12 days, some, something like yeah, that. Yeah, the 12 days of Christmas, which again, tonight is the last night. Right, so, right. So after tonight, you don't have to worry. But um <laughs> But it, this is, again, part of the same theme. This is the darkest time of year. So at this time, the 12 days of Christmas um, is when werewolves come out. And, you know, so um, in, in Latvia and Estonia, stories tell of an innocent looking little lame boy. And that boy, this is this would be worthy of a Disney cartoon almost, you know, mm -hmm who wanders the countryside summoning Satan's followers to a gathering. Anyone who lags behind is beaten with an iron whip 
In the end, they all transform into wolves and remain in that form for the 12 days of Christmas. So they would magically transform tonight back into humans. But yeah, um, yeah in, uh, in you know, werewolves in um, Eastern Europe, werewolves are popular. <laughs> and uh, one, uh, one thing that's not in the book, which I only learned after the book came out, which is why it's not in the book, um, werewolves tend to, the, their favorite night to come to the house is December 24th. That's when they want to come. Mm. So if a stranger knocks on your door on December 24th, you don't know who it is, and you open the door, um, you're supposed to have some ashes ready. And that's this is not in the book. Okay, I found this out recently. This hmm. is big, big in Lithuania. Um, you have some ashes, and if it's a werewolf, you throw the ashes at them, and that stops them. So a couple of things. That's probably a memory of the idea of keeping the embers going in the fire. Because normally at night you would bank the fire, which means you would cover the ashes so that by morning you could easily put on some peat or some wood or, you know, mm. to get the fire going again. But for the 12 days of Christmas, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to keep the fire going. So because things can come down the chimney, right? Um, things can come in the keyholes. That's an opening. Things can come down the chimney. You're not going to have your windows cracked or your door open because it's cold. You know, these right. are these are Northern European traditions. So the, the chimney and the keyhole are the two most dangerous uh, places. So just make sure that you have a key in the keyhole. And if you have a fireplace, you got to keep the fire going. So I think this this the idea that you can throw the ashes at a werewolf is just a memory to, you know, Keep the embers alive. But another nice little convenient thing, I thought about this, if you do throw the ashes out, um, it prevents people from falling on the on the doorstep. Because if oh, you right. yeah. snow and ice, right? It's a good idea to have ashes. So it's a it's a very practical um, you know, idea. Mm. All these things usually have a practical aspect. <laughs> That's really interesting. You know, it, it, speaking of werewolves, um, I don't know if you dally at all in the, the cryptid community, but they, uh, they're calling them dogmen as opposed to werewolves. But it's basically the same thing. Over the last couple of years, I, I mean, it is literally the same thing. Over the last couple of years, uh, there's been like a research. And I'm not, a, I, for me, the cryptid thing is pure entertainment. I'm not like a hardcore cryptid person, but I do find it really fun to, to follow. And, uh, the whole dogman thing has just over the last couple of years has gotten much bigger and people are discussing it more like Bigfoot, like kind of taking it a little seriously, you know? So well, Bigfoot, Bigfoot does exist. Right. But not in the way that you think. <laughs> because I I was in um it was either Washington or Oregon. I forget. I was talking to a Native American. Person. I lived in Washington for 14 years, FYI. Yeah. Okay. So I was talking to a Native American person, indigenous person. And of course, they have thousands of years of stories and knowledge about this. And he explained that Bigfoot is a fairy. It's a spirit. So, but they do stink. <laughs> they have a smell. Um, so if you ever get close to one, they smell. But but that's why they will never find one because you might see one, but you're not going to find it because it 
they live in a different dimension. Right. Well, that's like the whole Jacques Vallée school of thinking. Uh, and I, I, maybe you don't know that name. He was one of the first credentialed scientists to look into UFOs, which then brought him into the whole crypt, like just the whole paranormal world. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called Passage to Magonia. I believe he published it in the 70s, but it was very influential because his, his take, which and now you have people who are you can call them like the valet school of thought which is what i subscribe to is that these things come from kind of a common there there's something about the nature of reality which we could call another dimension um kind of a convenient short uh footnote way to say it um but just what you said basically just what you said that these things are coming from somewhere else and that they only appear briefly and then they're gone which is why we're we're never going to physically find one well, they're not coming from somewhere else. They're here. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends. Yeah. What you mean by somewhere else, you know, like a, a different <laughs> angle of this reality or, or whatever. Dimension. Yeah. I right. Mean, we live in a slower dimension, but the, you know, fairies, angels, Bigfoot, you know, all those creatures. Um, some people can see them. It's just, you just have to slow yourself down. Um some people do it by fasting. If you've ever done a Native American four-day or seven-day no food, no water fast, uh, sometimes you can slow down enough. I've only done it once. <laughs> I didn't mm. see them. I heard them. Oh, but, really? Well, some people hear them. Some people see them. Some people actually feel like they can touch them. Everybody's different. I don't see them. I hear them. I've heard them singing, you know. But, um, oh, wow. yeah, but but you have to slow down. You know, uh, think like a tree. <laughs> huh. When you when you did this fast, did you like did you stay stationary for that whole time, or did you go about your regular life? No, 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 <laughs> no. There's a you do a ceremony. I did this with Native American elders, with Cree elders. So it was very traditional. You know, there's certain foods that you eat. Um, OSHA tea for example um which is what the bears eat before they hibernate so um so you have that and then you you have just a little circle in the woods you know you mark your circle you put prayer ties around the edges and you have your little tent i had a tent some people don't do that some people just sleep on the ground but that's Mm. very very hardcore but i just had a little (laughs) tiny tent and uh, you have no food and no water. And the elder comes uh, at least once a day just to check up on you and make sure you're okay. And um, pretty quickly, I started having, I don't I can't call them visions because I didn't, well, actually, I did have a vision. I take that back. I saw something. But what I saw was not, not fairies. I heard fairies. Hmm. What I saw was a battle which is really weird because apparently well right next to where i was i had no idea i was in an old growth forest right so you know i was kind of at the top of a little rise and one day i looked down and i saw a battle it was terrible i saw people getting killed i saw blood all over the place like was this a time of firearms or swords or um I honestly don't remember. I just remember being horrified because of a lot of blood. I have a feeling it was Native Americans versus white settlers. I think that mm. was 
Um, Man, that's fascinating. So, so be, before, and I, I don't want to get too hung up on this one experience, but, um, but this is fascinating. I have to ask. So were you, were you already persuaded or convinced about the existence of these interdimensional entities before that event? Or was that event what like initiated you into that frame of thought? Um, well, you know, I've been a druid for 40 years. <laughs> so I've, I've been mm. hearing the stories, you know, uh, of the Sheehy, of the fairies. And, and I've visited the fairy forts in Ireland and Scotland and England. And, you know, um, so, I mean, I knew about it. But when I went into the fast, you're supposed to have an, in, an intention. You know, different people had different intentions. And my intention was that I wanted to communicate with the fairies. And it was incredible. It was like literally like within an hour. That's how really? fast it was. Yeah. So it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, starving or dying of thirst or any, it was immediate because we had eaten that morning. We, you know, we had food, we had water, we had tea. Um, and it was just, it was very fast. And the thing is, I've been able to hear them ever since. Wow, so really? um, I will go out in nature every, every once in a while. And it's not anything that I'm trying to make happen, but I will hear them. Wow, know. man, that is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, uh, well, I guess we've already just gotten into this because you're um, obviously when I was researching your background, you've been a Druid since 1984 is what I read. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, you, so when you're reading about all of these different traditions around the world and these people, you know, different cultures have different beings. Do you, do you think that these beings exist in any objective sense or is it a, a subjective interpretation of something? I guess, do you think they exist in a literal sense? Like if we're talking about elves from, I don't know, Finland or something. Do you think that their particular elves exist as they see them? And then the Irish have their particular creatures? Or is it all one creature that is being subjectively interpreted by the individual seeing them? No, I, I mean, if you go into a jungle, there's many different animals, you know. So what what you're, I mean, the astral, we call it the astral plane. That's been, a, that term has been around for a long time. But um, I've done meditations where, to, to contact the astral plane, and I've seen different things, actually. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, there's many different kinds, <laughs> You think they are geographically located, I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, yeah, they're connected to the to the land. Although some of them, you know, when the settlers came to America, for example, some of them came with families. So they're sometimes a family, this is in Scottish tradition, but sometimes a family will have an object like a, a cairn, a cairn, <laughs> which is a two stones um, that you use to, to grind grain. And it gets passed down through the generations in one family. And sometimes there's a spirit connected to that. And so if the family brings it, although it's kind of, you know, if you were coming across the Atlantic in a boat, it's kind of hard to be carrying big rocks. But if the family moves house and they bring that object with them, the spirit can come with them. Hmm. 
Wow, that's interesting because because then that raises the like the possibility of like invasive species of of astral beings, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> which is something <laughs> I've just never thought of before. That's that's an interesting thought. Well, it's kind of what's happening though is a little different. It's kind of what's happening to the natural world in general. Is that the more development there is, the more cities there are, the more cars, the more trains, the more airplanes, um, the more bright lights that they're being driven away. Hmm. Like they're having a, a really hard time. So people used to have spirits in the house, spirits in the barn, you know, sp spirits that would help. There were even spirits that would help with the wine production and they lived only in the wine cellars, you know, and you had to give them things. Um, but the more we, the more we develop, the more civilization there is, we cut down the trees, we destroy nature. Um, they, they can't handle that. So they're just being driven away further and further away and they don't, they can't work with us, you know? That, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I read a lot of Rudolf Steiner. I'm sure you're familiar with Steiner, but he, he talks about all of the different um, elemental beings, which is basically just the, the term that he uses to describe what you're describing, which, yeah. you know, it's basically the same thing, but um, yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it's just interesting I guess I wonder where do you think that would go? Like, like if, if things can continue to persist in the way that they're going and we, in the course was not reversed to allow these things, a more natural state of being again, to allow these things to live in a more natural way. Um, what do you think happens to them? Like, do, do they just perpetually live in these isolated areas and, or in the astral forever? You know what I mean? Like, like what would happen? I think they're hiding. They have to hide, you know. Mm -hmm. They might go underground. Um, that's probably where they go, underground. That's Yeah, and, and Steiner actually said exactly that. He said he talked about the, the earth beings that you, if you go uh, into subterranean passages, you could um, like literally encounter these things that still live underground, mm -hmm. which but then that becomes weird because then what if we, we as human beings expand underground? And then, like, <laughs> well, we do that a little bit with our mining and right. bombs that we drop. I mean, we're we're basically very destructive animals, <laughs> right? I mean, it's getting to be crazy. Right. So, you know, the best ca case scenario with Elon Musk and all these people, let the ones who want to leave leave, <laughs> and um, and then let the earth heal, right. That's the yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that. The the people who want to take humanity to Mars or wherever it is. I Let them go. <laughs> Let them go. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> I know. I, I've actually always, um, I've always found that an odd impulse. Like, why would, like, we're surrounded by life and all of these beautiful things. Why would you want to, I mean, Mars is interesting and everything, but it, it's a dead planet. Like, why would you want to live there as opposed to here? I just, I don't, I don't get it. Well, I have, but, I have I have theories, but I <laughs> <laughs> I think that especially the male of the species, no offense, um, wants to inseminate <laughs> endlessly. So if they can't do it here, they got to keep going you know, mm. to another planet or whatever. But, right. um, <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of 
people that are convinced that we can't survive here uh yeah. that that but that in itself is odd that's illogical too though because you're saying that you're going to take us from one inhospitable place to another inhospitable place like right. any techniques that you found to exist on mars would could just be done here if the planet dies so just uh, the logic of it is just really there is weird. no logic <laughs> there's no logic i mean we know how to stop global warming but people won't do it governments Maybe. won't do it <laughs> you know we don't seem to have the will. Mm. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to get, you know, we have how much was it? Six billion people on the planet now. And I mean, everybody has different priorities, different ideas. I mean, different cultures. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's I don't even think you could. I have this argument with my brother all the time. I think you could come to a universal consensus on anything like that's not how humanity is built. Um to my observations but um but anyway back to the book back to the book so uh <laughs> yeah there we go there we go let's get a good plug in so <laughs> you said this there's going to be what fourth book is Did that I is that what that? you said <laughs> I, oh, no no well i guess i assume that because you there's this is the this third. is third I said it was a trilogy. Oh, you did. Okay, okay. I was thinking in my head be broken up by the four seasons. Well, I, I have, um, yeah, a lot of people say that, but I have, a, like I said, there's a children's book. Um, eh, Once Around the Sun, Stories, Crafts, and Recipes to Celebrate the Sacred Earth Year. Um, oh. I, I go into summer, uh, you know, fall. This is a fantastic book. By the way, tonight, that's La Bifana. She's the Christmas witch. Hmm. She comes tonight. This is her night. Oh, cool. And she comes down the chimney. Because, like I said, spirits can come down the chimney. In which which um cultural tradition was that? Italian. It's, oh, that's Italian, really? Yeah, La Befana. Huh. Do they also have Santa Claus? Uh, I think, I don't think they, I think they would have St. Nicholas, I, I think. Hmm. <laughs> that's really interesting i would have thought that um yeah i guess i just assume that europeans all have kind of similar traditions um but no actually i know that's not true now as i just no, read your book not true. now i know i know that's not true what am i talking about yeah <laughs> uh no la Bifana is a very interesting character I, I i describe her in the book but um she seems to be she was originally a roman goddess strenua who is the goddess of the new year and um, the offerings were made to Strenua and she gave you perseverance and strength and, you know, all good things for the new year. And she was gradually demoted during the Christian era until she becomes a witch. So instead of a goddess being honored at new years, now you have a witch who shows up <laughs> mm. bringing presents and good things. But um, Babifana flies across the sky on a broom and um, so you're supposed to have a new broom um, every New Year's uh, on tonight. You put out a new broom and you put mm. it next to the fireplace because she comes down the chimney and she comes down and she blesses the broom. Uh, so the next morning you can sweep out the whole house magically, you know, sweep out all the bad or all the old stuff in out the door. And start the year fresh with your new. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so you you said so. She's a witch now, but you said she started out as what, like a goddess, a Roman goddess, Strenua. 
Wow. That's that's, that's so interesting that it's evolved into a, a just a witch. Yep. <laughs> well, that's that's the church for you. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I was curious about um I'm always really intrigued. You discuss this in the book a, a little bit. It's not it's not a central feature of the book, but I'm really curious about the I guess you could call it a debate, but I think it's more of a conversation. Uh, um where you well no, it is sometimes a debate, sometimes an argument. <laughs> the, the the difference between so you have there is the school of thought that the the Christian story um was basically a there was a story that had been told many times previously, and Jesus was the Jesus story was basically just it was like the horror story um mm -hmm. that happened again but for this time it it's kind of stuck and became like a, a cultural thing that it, it has continued to exist for a couple thousand years and then you have the the more traditional christians um i'm not i can't i don't want to try to formulate their argument but i've seen like worthwhile scholars who who argue those points and I'm always interested about it, but I don't know enough to come to a definitive historical conclusion. I'm curious, as uh, you, from a Druidic perspective, um, like I said, for the viewers, you you are openly, you, you uh, were initiated in a Druidic tradition in 1984. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what generally, how did the, what is the Druid perspective on that? Because this is interesting, because the Irish have such an interesting history with the christian christian religion you know like um good and bad i uh you know i mean the the catholic tradition has done i know a lot of irish people that do not like the catholic church at all no very, and, and very i can understand like i can definitely understand so i'm just curious your perspective on um just on those things and as it from from a druidic perspective well first of all i think only five percent of irish people go to church now wow and Isn't that low yeah it's because of the pedophile scandals right. and they're horrified and they just they're not interested and what's what's interesting to me um i go to ireland periodically i've been three or four times now and uh each time i go i learn new things um but the last time i went i was actually invited to Ireland by an Irish farmer, a cow farmer, who was looking for a Druid to bless his land. And I said, well, this is, you have Druids in Ireland. Why do you want me? But but he, he definitely wanted me, so off I went. Um, but he, he, you know, he had a large Irish Catholic family, I guess you would say. And Catholic and Protestant doesn't mean Catholic and Protestant, the way we think of it. Um, <laughs> Uh, Protestant means uh, pro-British and Catholic means Republic of Ireland, basically. So, oh, wow, I, really? yeah, it's a whole different, it's a thing. But anyway, so, <laughs> um, but what, but he was, he had such respect and he was so humble and respectful and just because I was a Druid and what I understood, you know, and I hadn't done anything to merit that respect yet. I mean, I did do a couple of nice rituals for the family. Um, but uh, what I figured out was that because the, the, the idea of the church was so repulsive, 
but they still had this strong spiritual sense, very mm. devoted spiritual sense, and they had to put it somewhere. So what's happening now in Ireland is Druidism is coming back. Really? Yeah. Um, there's a place called Ishna, which is, it, it was the home of the perpetual fire of the Archdruid. Um, and it was, it's the exact geographic center of Ireland. And it was a holy place before the Christians got there, you know, for thousands of years. And um, there was always a big festival there at Beltane, which is May Day. And in my lifetime, I've seen it go from being a park until gradually now every year more and more and more people are showing up at May Day and now thousands of people are showing up. Hmm. And it's, it's the place where their ancestors went, you know, for thousands of years and it's all coming back. That's really interesting. And it's, it's cool too, as I, I, I find the Druid tradition to be one of the more interesting and it's a shame to me that it's kind of just fallen out of um, popular practice. But so when we're talking about like earlier, you said that um, these astral beings are actually geographically located like, like to some extent, mm -hmm. um, like different areas, just like you have different animals, you have different of these astral beings. How does that um, how do you perceive that in your mind in terms of like Druidism? is it druid druidry I, i'm not really sure how to say it um was located specifically in ireland do you is do you think of it in does the druid community think of it as uh, a specifically irish tradition or is druid more of like a it's somebody who works with nature well there were druids in gaul which is france big parts of germany switzerland austria oh so they were not only located in no, ireland no 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 scotland uh all of britain had them um <laughs> that's a huge topic and by the way i have a new book coming out in may called celtic druidry oh cool maybe we can talk further <laughs> um, absolutely but yeah the druids were a class they were a class of people within Celtic society. They were the learned intellectuals. So to be a druid meant that you were a master or mistress. There were female druids. And I have an article on the internet. You can Google my name, Ellen Everett Hopman, female druids, and it should come right up. Um, but there's I, I will also put the link in the description. So this is for the viewers. In the description below this video, I will put the link to this. But uh, please go ahead. Yeah, so there were female as well as male druids because it was a caste. And it's like the Brahmins, the exact same social structure as you see in India. So mm -hmm. the, the druids are the Brahmins. And then you had the warrior class, which is equivalent to the Kshatriya. Then you had the farmers and producers. And then you had the slaves, which is kind of equivalent to the Sudra or, you know, the untouchables uh, in hindu society because that's the indo-european civilization it's the same social structure exactly hmm. so i think of druidism as the western end of hinduism or hinduism is the eastern end of the old celtic religion i mean it's the same religion and they both come from the same root they come from the vedic or proto-vedic uh 
scriptures and and people they have the same origin one group went east one group went west that's the same wow. religion sacred cows um fire and water making offerings to fire making offerings to water triple deities brahma shiva vishnu you know man that's interesting so in, in the celtic i assume it was the same but in the celtic version was there any possibility of mobility between the classes? Absolutely. And there was in Hinduism also until the ninth century. Mm. And what happened was, really? yeah, when the Muslim invasions happened in India, then the civilization, the culture hardened. Mm. That's what happens when people feel they're under attack, then the culture gets harder and more conservative and stuck. And that's why the caste system was frozen. But in Celtic thinking and in early Hindu thinking, the more learning you had, you could move up the social ladder. And if you behave badly, you could move down the social ladder. So it was all very mobile. Wow, man, that is we're, I'm definitely going to have to talk to you about your next book because that is that's fascinating. And that's really interesting um, and good to hear. I, some, I've always been bothered by systems where you cannot improve your situation that's always just been one of those things that sticks in my craw you know so i'm glad to hear that they could very interesting stuff but uh, all right so we're coming to the end of the hour and uh sorry that i i think i kind of went off on a little tangent but it's the, the druid stuff is so interesting to me um and it's it's not it is relevant to the book because the book is written you know with your your knowledge as a druid and uh, your herbalism and all of those things but so in addition to this book and the book that you just mentioned, do you have any other projects that you would like to um, just share with people and anything that you have coming up? Well, if people are interested in studying Druidism, um, the group that I founded and I was Archdruid for uh, nine years or something, is called Tribe of the Oak. And it's tribeoftheoak.org.org. Um and we have a training program. Uh, it takes a few years. There's a lot of reading involved. Um, and we have a public page um, on Facebook, Tribe of the Oak Druids Public Forum, something like that. Um, we also have a private page, which only members can be a part of. Um, but that's, in, and if you're interested in my books, you can go to my website, ellenneverthotman.com, or you can go to my Amazon author page. All my books are there because I have uh, three or four different publishers now. Um, so if you go to, yeah, just go to my author page on Amazon, you'll see everything there. Very cool. I guess I lied because I actually do have one more question that popped into mind. I think it'll be a quick one. Okay. So, uh, so you had mentioned that the Catholic or the the Irish a lot of them are returning to their uh, kind of pagan roots. Um, have you been experiencing that in general? Like with the tribe of the Oak, have you been noticing an uptick in interest um, like from here in the United States or from everywhere? Well, paganism in general is growing. We know this. Um, and paganism, you know, we even had something called the Dictionary Project. This was about 20 years ago, where we wrote to all the dictionaries because, and I think only one got back to us, but but um, people have a very strange idea about what a pagan is. And they think a pa pagan, a godless person, right? Mm. Or witch, an ugly old hag, you know? Um, 
And uh, hey, that's exactly the opposite. <laughs> um, pagans tend to be very well educated. Uh, there was a survey done at one point. We have a higher percentage of master's degrees than the general public. Uh, we read books voraciously. Right. Um, and uh, it's just, and we're not godless. I mean, that's the craziest idea of all because. <laughs> Paganism, actually, it's very similar to Hinduism. You'll see in Hinduism, we honor all the gods, we honor all the goddesses. And no, Satan is not a pagan deity. Satan is a Judeo-Christian deity, has nothing to do with us. Right. We, we do not work with Satan. If somebody's working with Satan, they're either a Christian or they're rebelling against Christianity or something. They're not a pagan, really, because mm -hmm. um, it's an earth religion. It's it's not about Satan. <laughs> Right, and I. So, do you have time for one more question? I'm sure. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm I'm sorry, but this led into something that I really wanted to ask, and I didn't get around to asking it. It feeds into what you just said. Okay. So, in the book, there's the um the the four thieves vinegar, and um to quickly recap that for the viewers, the four thieves vinegar was back in the plague times. Thieves would cover themselves with this stuff. So that they could they go break into people's houses and not get sick. Um, but what was interesting in what's leading into this question is that it appears, looking back, that it actually would have worked. That the stuff that they were putting on their body actually would have prevented them from getting sick. And so there's an idea that I have always found fascinating. Uh, this this notion that human consciousness and the earth are in, they're linked and like the earth is kind of always trying to speak to humanity. And so even in these pre-scientific times when people were not conducting scientific experiments uh, to figure out what worked. And yet we know that they were figuring out these plants that were serving these functions that they, you can't think of how they rationally could have figured this out in any other way if they weren't conducting scientific experiments. And so the idea is that, mother nature or however you want to say it, the 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 earth spirit is like guiding humanity and in, in letting us know like if you use this material it will do this and so i am curious i assume that is your perspective but number one i guess is that for your perspective and number two do you think there is a grand design to this it, it is humanity being um honed to try to get us to some like end state well you know there the expression the earth is our mother and it's literally true the earth is always trying to take care of us and if you pay attention um even if you live in a city i used to live in philadelphia i would walk down the street and i would see certain medicinal plants like in one area that was very polluted for some reason, mm. there would be a vast swath of this medicinal plant that was like a liver cleanser or something. So I, nature is smarter than we are. <laughs> She's always smarter than we are. And nature is always trying to feed us and heal us. That's what nature does. And we're just not bright enough to see what's going on, you know. I mean, I, mm. I, I can't remember if it's in this book or one of the other books I talk about what happened um, in 2008 when the economy collapsed and everybody was in a big panic because of the bank caused, you know, 
disasters. Um, mm. uh, everybody was terrified. They were losing their savings. I myself, I lost half of my savings. Um, and uh, that year I went outside and it was a massed year. So the oak trees were going nuts. I mean, I have nuts, literally. I haven't seen anything like that since. I mean, you couldn't walk outside without getting rained on by acorns, you know? Wow. And that was when I just, that was when I looked around and I said, oh, okay. You know, she's trying to tell us that there's plenty of food here. You mm. just got to pay attention, you know? So then right. I, that's when I started asking people, I said, look, I'll teach you. Just come here, come here. I'll show you what to do. Nobody was interested. Mm. And I, I just thought that was amazing. It took me years before I found people who were actually, because it's work, who actually wanted to sit down and learn how to process acorns, you know? Right. But that, that year it was really obvious. It was like the more scared people got, the more food was being thrown at us, you know? Right. I, I got to tell you, this is so interesting how this, I just interviewed a, a author who published a, a, a book on herbalism a couple of days ago. And it's so weird because she said that uh, there's St. John's war, I guess she said, mm -hmm. has been like sprouting up naturally and in, uh, in a quantity she had never seen before. And she was saying basically exactly what you just said about St. John's war. Um, right. So it's really weird to have that conversation with two different people in three days and you both light on that idea. Well, it's true. I mean, the thing is, you have to have the eyes to see. And right. And the brain to think, you know, and you have to pay attention. And I think, you know, people are, I don't have a smartphone, by the way. I refuse <laughs> to get one. I, I'm horrified. I see people, they're like this, you know, <laughs> and while they're like this or playing Candy Crush or whatever it is they do, I'm outside um, seeing owls and coyotes and bears, and, you know, talking to bears. I literally do that. And, um, you know, and I'm having all these experiences and I'm seeing what's going on with the plants, you know, what's disappearing, what's, what's moving in, what's needed, you know, and hmm. um, you got to put that phone down. <laughs> right, right. And then, and so uh, to, to finish up the question that I asked and thank you for the extra time, I appreciate it. Um, just to clarify when the question I asked a couple questions ago, so to quickly and encapsulate it there's a book called the secret history of the world uh but it doesn't matter because many people have said this rudolf steiner said this a lot of people from from that era have said this that basically humanity was born with a design in mind and through our evolution all this time we're, we're on our own but we're also kind of guided like you said like the earth speaks to us and says hey taps us on the shoulder why don't you pay attention you want you want to check this out mm -hmm. but the idea is there was an end in mind when this started, right? Like we're, we're being brought to this, this uh, conclusion, which is basically where we become more conscious, better people really is a simplified way of saying it, but that we have to go through this multi-generation, all these resurrections, all these different lives, this long history of humanity, as we're slowly learning lessons on an individual level and on a mass level, but there is an end to it. Like it's trying to get us to this point of kind of like a perfected nature, you know, where, where we are like Christians would say, we embrace the Christ consciousness. Other religions would say it different ways. Basically you're just where we, we become spiritually enlightened beings. Um, is there anything like that in the, 
the Druid perspective or your personal perspective of, of looking at it? Well, it's not really encoded in the Druid uh, tradition so much. We do talk about reincarnation. That's a basic belief. But um, I was one of the founders of a group called the Order of White Oak, which doesn't exist anymore. And then I went on to create Tribe of the Oak just to keep the teachings alive. But um, we study the Vedic scriptures um, because, as I explained, you know, the Celtic religion and the Hindu religion both come from the same source. So I, I go back to the source and... Um, there are these wonderful Gitas. My favorite one is the Ashtavakra Gita, which um, teaches you how to be an enlightened person. Hmm. Um, and I don't know. I mean, nobody's ever told me this, but I just I'm hoping that <laughs> that we're headed that way. That would be nice. Although when you see the way humans behave, it, you know, I don't think. Well, maybe we're all getting there at different rates. <laughs> Some, right. some people are closer and some people are. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic because it's almost like you'd kind of almost in a way want it to be that way because then that rewards your personal spiritual efforts, you know, and it, like if it was just going to be given to me, then why am I meditating for an hour every day? You know what I mean? But like, like you have to work for it. You have to work for your own personal growth which would then mean that it can't all happen at the same rate. It has to be individuated across, across different people. So I don't know, but uh, thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go. I appreciate this conversation so much. I love talking about this stuff. This is why I started this uh, endeavor in the first place. So I, I so appreciate this. Um, is there anything else that you would like to just tell people or anything? Well, if anybody wants to meet me in person, um, if you go to my website, ellenevertopman.com, there's a calendar there. And I'm going to be in Orlando, Florida in June teaching. I'll be I'll be talking about Druid. Oh, really? I live in Florida. Druid. I might actually go to that. Oh, it's, okay. It's called Summer Magic Festival, I think. It's on my website. Um, you can Google it. Um, but I'll be lecturing there and I'll have my books and Oh, very cool. Uh, I do a lot. Of, I mean, I'm online all the time. <laughs> I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. You can find me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll find all those links and they'll be in the description box for everybody. Everybody wants them. But um, so in the meantime, Happy New Year. I hope it has started out successful for you. I hope the book is a huge success. And uh, I will definitely be contacting you to talk about this, the other book that you have coming because that's that's got me.